Hello and welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe. Glad to be back after a short hiatus, <laughs> as it were. I know I've been getting a little uh, intermittent lately. Uh, God only knows why. Still a lot of other stuff to do, but I'm glad to be back. I'm glad that you're back. Glad to be talking with you today. Um, I will offer my standard disclaimer. The views expressed on Strange Sound are my own. They are not the views of anyone associated with me, not by my employer, my uh, friends and neighbors, not my countrymen, not my... <laughs> Let's face it, no one agrees with me. No one. Not even you. Well, maybe some of you. Uh, shout out to Ace. Uh, I think you agree with me occasionally. And uh, God bless you. Um, as has been my custom of late, I am going to read my blog. I don't have my tablet with me today, so I'm going to read it straight off of the screen. That is my... Um, that is connected to the computer where I am actually recording this. <laughs> so I'm going to be running two screens at once. So it's going to be a little spastic. But I'm going to read this nonetheless. And it's... Uh, one of my political rants, what I call my furious rants. Um, you can find this at big-green.net. Follow the blog link. Click through to the blog. Look under political rants. And you will find a post dated October 8th called There's Nothing New Under the Gun. And the post goes something like this. There's a real sense of frustration in center-left circles in the United States. It's understandable why. The president has proposed a massive bill that will fund a host of badly needed programs. These are priorities the progressive wing of the party has long championed. So in, re in that respect alone, the very fact of this reconciliation bill is a kind of victory. Now, passage of this landmark legislation depends on approval by a 50-50 Senate which means somehow convincing the likes of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, whose name I spelled wrong, by the way, but that's okay, um, to vote for it. It is aggravating to watch two self-aggrandizing senators block a bill that has the support of a vast majority of Americans, but that aggravation is nothing new. And I think despite the drawbacks, we have come a long way over the decades. It's best to remember that we've been in worse places before. Back in January 2009, when the financial crisis was in full swing, the Democrats had just sworn in huge majorities in both houses of Congress. They had a filibuster-proof 60 senators for a brief time and 200, 255 members of the House. So the sky was the limit, right? Wrong. Somehow they managed to negotiate the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act down to a ridiculously small size, even though they needed not a single Republican vote to pass it. The final bill was nearly one-third tax cuts and far smaller than, than what was needed to put the economy back on track. In other words, they negotiated themselves out of an effective stimulus and reconstruction package. Then there was the Affordable Care Act marathon. That was thousands of hours of committee work, whittling down the legislation to meet an arbitrary cost standard set by the GOP, in essence. So the best we could do on health care was whatever policy we could squeeze through the little tin horn that was Nebraska Senator Ben Nelson, the Joe Manchin of his day. Now you may ask yourself, with 60 or near 60 votes in the Senate, 
why did they need to observe these restrictions? I think the answer is pretty simple. The Democratic Party was a lot farther to the right in those days, on balance. They and their president were happy to settle for glorified Romney care. They were happy to contemplate a grand bargain. They were happy to contemplate a grand bargain that would have gutted Social Security. Honestly, the overwhelmingly Democratic 111th Congress would never have even contemplated some of the provisions in the current reconciliation bill. Opposition to the child tax credit, paid family leave, etc., would have been larger than would have been larger than two senators. That's because progressives have, in essence, won many of these arguments, thanks to the determined efforts of Senator Sanders and others on the inside, and movements like Occupy Wall Street, BLM, and others on the outside. Think about it. We are really just a whisker away from some of the most progressive policy changes since the start of the neoliberal era. The whole thing could still go up in smoke, but this is closer than we've ever been. And it's not only tremendously popular, but backed by 96% of the Democratic caucus and the president. So we're making progress. Slower than we like, but progress nonetheless. Love you. <laughs> JP, I spelled love wrong too. I always spell it wrong, but this this time I spelled it really wrong. It's, uh, I have Lu Yu. <laughs> I left out the V. I was falling asleep when I posted this, so forgive me if you read this. Um, it's a little spastic. And uh, anyway, uh, once again, this is available at big-green.net. Always free. Just like this show. Always free. I will never charge for <laughs> you listening to my ridiculous opinions. But uh, glad to have you uh, listening to this once again. Um, again, you can you can read this post at big-green.net. Share it, like it, um, discuss it, push back. More on that later. Now, someone out there is going to say this is Mr. Optimism again. Mr. Electoralist optimism, again, phony leftist, that sort of thing. And, you know, it's a fair cop. Uh, you know, I, I am farther to the left than any of these policies suggest. Um, I think anybody who knows me knows that. And, yeah, it's this is kind of Pollyannish sounding, I know. It's just that I remember what it was like to have that 60-40 Senate with Barack Obama as president and being frustrated as hell that they were advancing these small-bore solutions to these massive problems that we were facing at that time. I mean, this is the thing that produced uh, Occupy Wall Street. This is the dynamic that produced Occupy Wall Street, was just the frustration over the fact that nothing was being done to address the fundamental problems that had brought about the, the financial crisis in the first place. They were obviously not going to do anything. I mean, I remember when Barack Obama was, was elected. After the election, the first thing they were, they were talking about was, we need to have continuity. They kept using the term continuity over and over again. We need to have continuity. And it's like, what? but wait, you just had a campaign that was themed change. 
right? Wasn't it change, hope, change? Hope is a pointless word, but change, right? <laughs> and uh, then they were talking about continuity. Why? Because, uh, you know, this was, these were consummate insiders. And I'm not trying to make this argument like it's, you know, this is the deep state, you know, fighting back. It's just that these are powerful interests. You know, the banking sector is is powerful and has tremendous influence. The financial services sector is just massively powerful in this country. And it's, you know, it's all tied in with other industries as well. You know, and nobody wanted to take the hit. You know, they wanted to pass the cost on to the American people, and that's exactly what they did. So instead of working out people's mortgage loans, you know, what we did was made the banks whole and left homeowners hanging. For the most part, some people got, uh, you know, got to work down on their on their mortgage, but <laughs> most people got hung out to dry. And, uh, you know, things have slowly, you know, returned over the years. It's just that it's, it's, it's such a low standard now that, um, any kind of recovery would be considered something better than nothing. So I don't, you know, I don't want to get too deeply into that, but I'm, what I'm saying is our politics at that time was tremendously different from, from what it is now. And the difference is the resurgence of the left to the extent that that left can be expressed in electoral politics and in the institutions of government. Right now, it is expressed in the institutions of government by some of our representatives, by the AOCs and the Ilan Omars and the, and the Bowmans and the, you know, um, the Rashida Tlaibs and, and the Bernie Sanderses, right? And they are essentially leading the conversation on a lot of the issues that are contained within the reconciliation package. And this is a package being advanced by Biden, right? Biden is a centrist, a corporatist, right? So why is Biden advancing some of these tremendously progressive policies? Not, you know, not Medicare for all, but things that you would never have seen in 2009, not for a million years. Think back to how they talked about social programs back then. They all talked like Joe Manchin does now. Now it would be socialism, entitlements. We need to cut entitlements. We need to cut spending. I mean, remember when John McCain was running, he was like talking about, well, we're going to freeze spending. In the middle of a massive recession, he was advocating that we freeze spending. <laughs> Which is just insane. I mean, it's just basic economics. When there's a massive recession, you know, when, when business can't spend, and when individuals are being thrown out of work and they can't spend, then the only thing that's left is government. And if you're going to have a capitalist system, you have to have some kind of cash flow somewhere along the line. <laughs> Money changing hands, right? Well, the only thing 
that can be done in those in those circumstances rather than, you know, short of a revolution is for the federal government to start spending money and spending it now. And they were all, you know, they were carping about this. I think the Obama administration had suggested a package somewhere around the magnitude of maybe $800 billion, eight to $900 billion. I remember, um, I remember John Boehner, who was speaker at the time, um, doing one of his, you know, it was basically the, uh, sound bite in response to the size of the package. Uh, he, he was essentially quoting a, you know, sort of, um, euphemism at the time. Uh, oh my God. I remember him saying as if he were like uh, a teenage school kid or something. <laughs> oh my God. Um, just to make that point, just so that it would be the you know, sound bite. I'm sure, I don't know. Frank Luntz probably gave him that one, right? But it was, you know, they thought that that was ridiculous. You know, they thought that that size package, you know, with the economy cratering and 750,000 to 800,000 jobs being lost every month, um, that they, you know, that they thought that was too much money to spend. <laughs> I mean, seriously. And, you know, the the uh, Obama administration and the Democrats negotiated with them and got agreement on a package that was one-third tax cuts and quite a bit smaller than that, somewhere more in the $700 billion range. And even that was sufficient enough uh, stimulus to sort of, sort of bend the curve, the employment curve in the other direction for a while, you know. So for the next year or so, things started perking up a bit. But it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of thing that was needed for that moment. I, I guess, you know, rather than to get deeply into the history of this, I'm just sort of like pulling these things from memory um, just to make the point that what was contemplated in those days is nowhere near what is being contemplated now. And the idea that you would have Bernie Sanders as the chair of the budget committee in the Senate, you know, putting this package forward with really, you know, not a lot of pushback from the other side and not a lot of pushback within his own party. <laughs> I mean, again, we're talking about two senators, you know, um, holding this thing up on the Democratic side. That's it. I mean, no Republicans are voting for it, obviously. But that's really more of an ideological thing than a, than a policy question. They don't seem to be interested in policy whatsoever. It's really just, you know, it's the Democrats, what they want. We, you know, we're against it, whatever they want. But, I mean, the things that are in this bill are just like way beyond anything that could have been contemplated back in 2009 when we had overwhelming majorities. Now, of course, we lost those majorities and we lost really a lot more than that, right? I mean, we lost legislative seats um, by the thousand in 2010. 
and that allowed the uh, Republicans to gerrymander the um, the districts um, across the country to a point where it's almost impossible to elect the Democratic House of Representatives now, and it's it is literally impossible to um, elect Democratic legislatures, houses of of uh, legislative houses in in several states like Wisconsin is one, um, North Carolina, uh, New Hampshire for a while. Um, it, you know, a lot of these states were just gerrymandered to a living, to a fairly well. I mean, it was, and it's just impossible to get, you know, either a majority of the congressional delegation uh, to be Democrats, even though the the vote totals aggregate throughout the state may may tilt, you know, Democratic, you're still going to have a minority of seats held by Democrats. The Republicans simply locked themselves into majorities across the country in key states and in, by flipping key districts in 2010 and again in 20, you know, 2014. But 2010 was the more salient election because it was uh, the year of the census and that was followed by um, a reapportionment that was driven by, you know, big data. Essentially, they worked it out. There was a kind of a genius to it. I mean, they just worked out a permanent majority in a lot of these states. And in practically in the in the U.S. House, it was it, it's a really steep climb for Democrats to take the majority in the House now. Um. But you know we're seeing some of the some of the results of this, and I just so you don't think I'm completely Pollyannish about how things are, how great things are now. They're not great. They're really not great uh, because we're you know we're seeing some of the results of having lost way too many elections over the course of years, and of the courts being packed by right wing ideologues, and we're coming up upon you know, a, a series of cases before the Supreme Court that could have tremendous impact on practically every aspect of our lives. Now, there there's several cases that are, you know, talked about quite a bit, um, the abortion cases, um, and rightfully so case out of Mississippi that's a direct challenge to um, Roe v. Wade. It's quite possible that they will they will knock Roe v. Wade over with this, uh, which is not a small thing. And I, again, that's a product of the fact that we're even talking about this is a product of the fact that we have not elected either enough senators or the right people to the White House. As somebody who couldn't stand Hillary Clinton, I still think we should have elected her in 2016 instead of Trump, and then we wouldn't have a conservative majority on the court right now. A six to three conservative majority, which is pretty much foolproof for conservatives. There's almost no way you're going to get a surprise decision there. 
well, it's not impossible, but it's just it's it's a lot steeper climb now. <laughs> so so we have a huge problem here. Um so there's that case. There's also a gun control case, a gun rights case that's coming up. I think it I think that one's out of New York. Um that's about concealed carry. And there's um a lot of folks are of the opinion that this is going to be this concealed carry case is going to be the next step in the sort of gun rights tilt of the court. Hang on just a second here. Forgive me. I'm just readjusting my microphone here. My apologies. My apologies. Hang on, hang on, hang on. A little bit of thunder. There we go. There we go. Okay. Uh, I I have a slight leg injury here, and I'm wearing a boot, and I had to sit down. <laughs> so that's that's what that's all about. I had to just lower my mic. Um. So the gun rights, the gun um, control um, case that's coming before the Supreme Court, I think, is out of New York, and that's that's about concealed carry and. If that falls, that's that's essentially. If that goes the way of of the gun, uh, the gun nuts, essentially, um, who count among their numbers, uh, probably the majority of the members of the Supreme Court. Um, this is this is going to mean uh, you cannot ban concealed carry, and then it's just a question of. You know, will that one day extend to um, to open carry? So you're going to have people packing all over New York State pretty soon, you know, carrying handguns everywhere they go. No restrictions. That could happen. That could very well happen this coming year. We'll see. Frightening. No question about it. Um, okay, so... <laughs> the case that isn't getting a lot of attention and this puzzles me because again this is this is a direct result of the fact that we've been losing elections we've been losing senatorial elections and we've been losing presidential elections with too much frequency over the last 10 years and this is the result they've been packing the courts and what we're seeing is um, these cases going uh, completely the wrong way. (laughs) And one of these cases has to do with what's called Chevron deference. And I'll be honest, I'm not a legal expert, but I can can read just as well as anyone else from the law, the law library of uh, Cornell University. (laughs) This has to do with uh, regulations. And again, this is not something that's being reported on. The other cases are getting a lot of attention because they tend to be uh, they they tend to be issues that the media concentrates on. So abortion, and rightfully so, a lot of people interested in that. Um, gun rights, rightfully so, a lot of people interested in that. That agitates a lot of people, so the the, the press covers it. But uh, this other case, the case that I'm thinking of actually, um, is a case that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. It's called 
American Hospital Association v. Becerra. It's a fight over Medicare reimbursements for certain medications. Um, it deals with what's called Chevron deference. Chevron deference refers to a 1984 case uh, that came before the Supreme Court. Um, it was NRDC Chevron USA Incorporated versus Natural Resources Defense Council Incorporated. And that was back, that was decided back in 1984. And what that case uh, went in favor of NRDC. Um, and, and without going into a lot of detail about this, which, you know, again, I'm not a legal expert, but I've, I've heard a lot about this. Um, this was pretty well reported on by a majority report, by the way. So if you want to go back and listen to that over the last week or so, uh, check that out. But um, the definition of, of Chevron deference in uh, in the Cornell Law Library is, is as follows. The scope of the Chevron deference doctrine is that when a legislative de- delegation to an administrative agency on a particular issue or question is not explicit but rather implicit, a court may not substitute its own interpretation of the statute for a reasonable interpretation made by the administrative agency. So it's the whole idea of a piece of legislation, let's say the Clean Air Act, um, essentially says, you know, something, the language of the legislation is going to be something like, you know, we want clean air. <laughs> we want clean water, right? Maybe the Clean Water Act, right? And it 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 basically empowers the EPA to determine what that means in very specific terms. So the experts at the EPA, expert administrators, um, scientists are going to determine which chemicals should be, um, should be excluded from the air or the water at what levels, you know, at what levels are these tolerable uh, to human health to public health is it is it a danger to public health they set they set the standard for that based on science and based on based on the priority of public health they they use their judgment and when these judgments are disputed by say industry so in this case in the 1984 case Chevron v NRDC uh, Chevron was complaining about the fact that they were being you know, held to this standard. And, and what the court basically said was, look, um, when Congress passes a law, they, they defer to, (laughs) they delegate authority, um, to make these kind of granular decisions about what's safe and what's not safe in the case of these kind of environmental regulations. Um, to the relevant agency. Now, this is a principle that cuts across a, a whole range of issues. I mean, the case that's actually before the Supreme Court now has to do with Medicaid reimbursement for for uh, prescription drugs. So that's like a totally different thing. Um, it's just uh, reimbursement rates. But the, the important thing to remember here is that the court is very different now than it was in 1984. The court was conservative in 1984 as well, but now it's ridiculously conservative. And resident on the court right now are a bunch of people who are hostile to this idea of deference. 
of the Chevron deference doctrine. Um, in other words, they they do not. So, for instance, um, Neil Gorsuch um, is is a stickler for the letter of the law and the letter of the Constitution. Nothing beyond that. No, um, no implicit interpretation of what the Constitution or law means. It's it's either in the bill or it doesn't exist. It's either mapped out in the bill that you don't want, um, I don't know, dioxin in the water, um, or it's or it's not in the bill. You have to look at, you have to go back to Congress and legislate that and say specifically, I don't want dioxin in the water, or dioxin can only be tolerable at this level in the water. You know, you can't leave that to the EPA. You can't delegate that authority. The principle of delegation um, is anathema to them. Um, they're saying that it's that Congress cannot delegate that authority. So this case gives them an opportunity to say, okay, well, this delegation of authority to um, an administrator in this in, in the case of the Becerra um, case before the court, um, the Medicaid Medicare um, under HHS, uh, the notion that that Congress can delegate the authority to set pricing to that agency, um, there's a good chance that the Supreme Court will say, no, you don't, Congress can't do that. The agency cannot make those decisions. Um, You know, we're, we're abandoning the idea of deferring to the agencies, to the expert agencies. Because we feel like that's that's a violation of of the separation of powers. Um, this very poorly reported, <laughs> and again, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this because I'm not an expert. I I notionally understand what it's talking about. It's basically the bottom line of this is that. A decision that goes a certain way in this case could unravel pretty much the entire regulatory structure of the United States. So every regulation that keeps people safe at work, every regulation that um, um, controls, you know, what's considered healthcare and what's not considered healthcare, every regulation that keeps chemicals out of the water, everything that's set by the EPA um, to keep air clean and water clean. All of that could fall by the wayside. All of it. All of it. And that's that's kind of where the Supreme Court wants to go on this. Now, are they going to do it in one big step? I don't know. But they could. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's a formula for chaos, right? And it basically says, well, okay, if you're going to protect people from, say, dioxin, then Congress has to act specifically on that issue. You can't leave it to the EPA to keep your water clean, to keep you safe from a specific chemical that might be put into the water by some industry. Congress has to specifically bar that. It has to be in the language of the bill or else it's not applicable. Congress cannot delegate that authority. That is 
That is their attitude about this. And that is where they might go with this. And the reason why we're looking at this, this is this is like the this is Steve Bannon's dream, right? This is deconstruction of the administrative state. This is this will be Trump's triumph, essentially, because he appointed three of these justices, and this would not be an open question if it wasn't for that fact that he was elected and he had the opportunity to appoint three right-wing Supreme Court justices. We're stuck with them. And they may pull the plug on the entire regulatory system of the United States. And there's very little we can do about this. So I'm just putting that out there. You know, look, if you... (laughs) For those of you who think I'm a Pollyanna because I, (laughs) I think that we've moved a little bit in the legislative realm. I'm here to tell you the biggest failure that we have right now, the, the, the best evidence for our failure from an electoral standpoint and from an organizational standpoint, but, but particularly from an electoral standpoint because judges are, are appointed by elected officials. The biggest evidence of our failure is in something like this case. American Hospital Association v. Becerra. That could be that could be like pulling the keystone out um, of an arch. Right? The whole thing falling in. The whole administrative state falling in. And you know, you'll hear you'll hear Bannon clapping. <laughs> under his bridge, wherever he's sleeping. Um, But honestly, this is horrendous. This is truly horrendous. Um, So, you know, just add that to the list of reasons why elections matter. We wouldn't have gotten here if it wasn't for losing those elections. And the only way we can move forward is by winning more elections and by organizing. But honestly, we need to win elections too. Made the point many times before. I'm likely to make it again. Sorry if you're sick of it. (laughs) I'm sick of it too. And this is, you know, this um, Chevron deference thing is I'm losing sleep over this. This is not good. So I just wanted to note that uh, a lot more, a lot smarter people than me have commented on this. I would recommend that you listen to Majority Report on this and look up some of the references that they point to. Um, if you want to learn more about this, uh, it's a huge issue, and it's really not being talked about. I mean, the only the only publication I could find online through. Google searches that's really talking about this at all is like environmental um, organizations and publications, things like Greenwire um, are talking about it. Uh, but I, there's just no reference to this. It's like this this case that could bring down our entire administrative state is just not even being reported on. <laughs> it's just astonishing. 
But anyway, that's all I got for this week. I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a one-minute voice message when you um, when you visit anchor.fm slash strange sound. You'll find the means of doing so. You can also reach out to me on Twitter. We're at strange sound pod. If you go to big-green.net and, and click on the contact link, the tab, um, it will take you to um, Funky Town. <laughs> it will take you down to... Uh, where you can contact me. Otherwise, there's other ways to get in touch with me. Um, be glad to hear back from you. Be glad to hear your thoughts on this. Be glad to get a little bit of pushback. If you've got some pushback, let's turn this into a conversation. Uh, always glad to be with you. Uh, hope you'll tune in next time. Please like the show, share the show, tell people about the show, uh, you know, even if you don't like it. Tell people about this show you can't stand. <laughs> in any case uh we'll see you next time around thanks for listening take good care out there be safe